I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. What is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? If you had to describe it in two words. Incisive summarization. Okay. If you had to explain what it wasn't in two words. What it's not? Yeah. Boring regurgitation. Nice. <laughs> That's what you wanted. I'm sorry. You might have to look somewhere else, but if you like us if you hear something you like please leave us a five-star reviews on apple podcast ashley reads all of our five-star reviewers at the end and who else do we thank this week we are thanking solo stove thank you for sponsoring our podcast upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit and create story worthy moments without the fireside fumes get solostove.com promo code worm for $10 off on top of the incredible memorial day discounts but hurry because the memorial day sale ends on june 5th the day before your birthday the day before my birthday so if anyone was looking to get ashley a solo stove for her birthday Run quick. She actually doesn't need one. I have one. <laughs> we but, have. But if you want to get one for yourselves in honor of my birthday, go to town. Ashley, can I ask you something? Sure. If you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would your time be called? Okay. So I would title this chapter, I think, just like blah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I do just feel blah. And I think it's a combination. I always get like bluesy around my birthday. I don't hate birthdays or anything. I just don't love mine I actually love other people's birthdays I don't love my birthday it always feels like this weird holding pattern around your birthday when you're like all right my birthday's in two weeks so I'm just about to get older and I feel like I can't like start or do anything I don't know why I just feel like that every year I don't know I was talking to my friends about it who are all already 30 who most of them have turned 31 now and they're all just like yeah I don't know 31 is just like fucking weird like you turn 30 and you're like oh I'm 30 30 yeah. and flirty who cares 30 flirty and thriving and then 31 you're like 31 like it's just like a womp <laughs> and so I'm just very like blah I got it that's my week it just has been very like hazy and nothing how's yours I feel like I'm in the summer of my life in terms of <laughs> it's been very beautiful outside. Yes. And I have gotten nothing done because it's so nice out. And I just want to like bop around and go for walks. Sure. But then next week we move into our studio, which I'm so excited about. Me and too. You guys, we were able to get a studio. Thank you so much. I'm like excited to be able to bring you better content. We'll be better on YouTube, more video digital clips and the audio will be better. Everything will be better because we'll have... A studio and not just Ashley's apartment that we're like setting up as we go every time. Yes. The first day of the rest of our lives. In my head, I'm like, well, real life starts June 1st when we get our studio. And I'm so excited that a routine is about to start. But until the routine can start June 1, I can't. What am I supposed to start a routine in advance? That's insane. That That's would be crazy. the stupidest thing you could do is to start a routine pre-routine starting. You sound silly. So I right now I'm just like not. <laughs> anyway, I can't wait for everything in my life to completely change 180 starting next Wednesday and it will and should we get into the book I guess we should and a reminder June 14th despite life starting June 1st June 14th there will not be a new episode so just brace yourself for that we will be doing patreons from vacation though because we can't get enough of you little freaks <laughs> we can't get away even if we wanted to yeah and we appreciate that even though we're taking a break you guys love us as we are just like Garcelle in her book, Love Me As I Am. Did you know Garcelle before this book? I did not. Can you, as a Real Housewives of Beverly Hills watcher, give me a 60-second summary of what you know of her? 
Yeah, so Garcelle came out of the Beverly Hills. She was, I think, the first woman of color ever to be on that show. She came on with Crystal. I found her to be a breath of fresh air because she's, like, really beautiful. <laughs> it was really interesting on this reality show to, like, finally have a beauty. No, but she's actually very naturally beautiful. And she actually gets into what work she has and has not done. And it's, like, none. She's gotten none work done. There's something about her. She, like, has the best style out of everyone. And she is the most beautiful. She is not the richest, though. She has an interesting vibe because everyone else feels very, like, con man money and I think she is just like a successful working actress single mom who has like a nice amazing house but it's not insanity and she's also I think known for being honest like she'll hold Erica to her bullshit I think she'll call people out where they need to be called out but in like a very mild-mannered way interesting so Garcelle let's get into it so Garcelle's book is interesting in that she kind of just like runs you through it the first two chapters are her entire life (laughs) from birth to now and then she goes back in and fills in some important holes i will say the first two chapters are her entire life then there's about six chapters of interesting stories from that life that i just gave you and then there's about four chapters of her thoughts on things that is just nonsense (laughs) and then there's literally 25 pages of her quotes from the book yeah she does something i've never seen a memoirist do before which is at the end of the book that you've just read she has a couple of pages called garcelle's gems where she quotes quotes from the pages that you just read <laughs> like in case you missed it the first time this was actually really smart like a full page quote that doesn't roll off the tongue in the way that like a motivational quote would yeah so all in all this book is less than 200 pages and then they added garcelle's gems but i like it i mean it's very to the point i'm i'd rather her run through it than meander even more I want to start with the prologue. This book is about my journey to finding Garcelle, finding my G-spot. When there's no lights, camera, and even when I'm getting no action, that's the real G-spot for me. I thought that this book was going to be very saucy. Like she talks about how this is going to be about her sexcapades, but also more. And I was like, oh, this is going to be like a slutty ass book. And it really wasn't. It wasn't at all. She talks about sex like once or twice. She really does gear you up for something horny. I think she has a very horny podcast called In Bed with Garcelle. Okay. So I think maybe if she's trying to do a little something for everyone and if you knew her via the podcast, you're coming in for more salacious gossip. But initially you might think that this will be just a salacious collection of sexually charged kiss and tell stories from my life. Not my intention, but I hope you won't be disappointed. Wink, wink. I have to say this prologue set me up to not like this book because there is this trope of a housewife that's like overly sexualizing everything. Yeah. Like Lisa Vanderpump was very much somebody who was like, lay down with my husband. What is it? His birthday? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Everything is an innuendo. I guess we like are on the side of prude. I'm not the side of prude. There's something annoying to me about like in lieu of being interesting or authentic or funny. You just make sex puns. I don't like a sex pun. I think that sex should be talked about more openly and honestly because I think that I had like a pretty sheltered childhood where I like didn't really know anything about sex. I like learned everything from experience and I like don't think that should be anyone's life. But I also feel like when you're writing it out in a very saucy way to like just get headlines it's annoying we're not obsessed with it so she starts right off the bat childhood (laughs) chapter one is like 30 pages and it's called childhood and it takes you up until she's 18 (laughs) this is like the opposite of shania twain i was like wow she is running through it so she was born november 28th 1966 in haiti however when she moved to the u.s they fucked up her birthday so she has two birthdays in the u.s her birthday is the 26th So she's born 1966. This book did just come out a few weeks ago. So right now she's 56. 
So she was born in Haiti, and her dad left pretty early on. She was three years old. Yeah, he went out the classic to get milk and just never came back. She was the youngest of seven. Her mother had three older children with one man, the next three children with another man who had them in Montreal. They grew up in Montreal, and then she was very much the baby in Haiti. She said she doesn't have a distinct smell of cologne, a tender moment to associate with him. There was no paternal bond or air of familiarity and affection with this person I was told was my dad. There's just no father figure. We see this in a lot of books where there is no present father. There's not a missing of him. There's like a missing for what society tells us a dad should do. She says, he simply didn't exist. And my world consisted of just me, my mom, my sisters, brothers, and some extended family. And then she talks about having like a really wonderful life in Haiti. As far as she knew, she left when she was seven, but her mother was a nurse. So she, like she owned a home. Her grandmother owned a home a few blocks away and owned a candy store. She talks very lovingly about Port-au-Prince and the colors, the smell and the fruits and the people and the sense of community. And she like thinks of it very fondly. She was a very scrawny kid. She talks about the way curvy figures were valued where she's from and how she hated being so skinny. And I found that very refreshing. I know we hear that a lot, but I don't know the way she talks about just like wanting a full body. I was like, okay. She also talks about how, from what she can tell, the love of her mother's life was her father. And she was absolutely heartbroken when he left, but she never showed bitterness. And she's like, as much as it might have hurt her, she really carried that burden in silence and was able to be very optimistic and kind and open and loving. So the one thing about Haitian culture that was hard for her is like the children should be seen in that herdness of the culture. And she was always full of questions. She was a really inquisitive kid, still is, like Claire said. She's known on The Real Housewives for just really asking those questions that no one's saying out loud. So when eventually they left, that's what she gained was the ability to ask questions and be more involved She says, even as a grown woman, my biggest regret is that I never asked my mother more questions before she died in 2008. I will never truly know what Marie-Claire Beauvais, my mother, was thinking during those lonely nights right after my dad left. I'm sure she stayed up endlessly waiting for him to come home and cried herself to sleep. How do I know this? Because I've done it myself in my own life. There's that pattern again. What I do know is that she was never bitter, never hateful or vengeful, and always there providing for us. In her quiet and dignified way, she taught me the powerful lessons of fortitude and self-perseverance. Dealing with her own pain in the way that she chose informed my narrative about being a woman and dealing with the loss of love. So when she's six years old, her mom leaves to move to America to see if there's opportunity there. And then a year and a half later, sends for Garcelle and her siblings. So when she's about seven and a half years old, she moves to Peabody, Massachusetts. She doesn't speak a word of English and she learns it from Sesame Street. And also, she's never been chilly before. So yeah, she shows up in the cold and is like, Mm. it's awful. (laughs) I will say if I was moving from Haiti to Boston in the winter... That's like a horrible, horrible jolting experience. Horrible. I cannot fathom. So she talks about going into Boston to visit her cousins a lot. And coming from Peabody, Boston was a diverse place. She was like, it was so amazing to be in the city (laughs) where you would see other black people because in Peabody, that just didn't exist. And it's like, damn, for Boston to be a hub of diversity. She says, I remember being the only black girl in my entire school. Think about that for a minute. There were no other kids that looked like me at all. Going from an environment where everyone in my school looked like me and spoke like me to an all-white school was instant culture shock. For a kid who was already shy, this was the worst position to be in. I do think she ultimately made a lot of friends, though, and she was a cheerleader, and she danced, and she could sing and be herself. So I think she just very quickly was able to pick up the language and make friends. She did have a little bit of a cultural back and forth, which I think a lot of kids experience. 
But her mom was very adamant about them not over assimilating. Her mom would yell, remember, you're Haitian, not American. And she was like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do because I want to fit in with the kids at school. But I also want to respect where I'm from. But it is really hard to walk that line as a kid or really ever. You see, that's the love-hate relationship that many first-generation immigrants have with the process of assimilation. We are never running from the richness of our culture. We are running toward the hope of a new perceived opportunities. When she is in high school, they end up moving to Miami, which she is actually very excited about because, one, it's warm there, which, I mean, I would rather live in Miami than Boston, personally. Yeah, me too. Especially coming from Haiti. Like, if you know it can be better climate-wise, I would rather it be better. And she thinks that this is going to be, like, this amazing opportunity to be around more diversity, more people that look like her, but instead she's actually rejected harder in Miami because they all say that she speaks white and, like, wants to be white. So coming from Boston, where she tried so hard to fit in, now in Miami she stands out like a sore thumb once again. I stood out because I was the new tall girl, but also because I apparently spoke proper English or like a white girl, as the kids coined it. And suddenly the girls hated me and constantly threatened to beat me up after school. According to them, I didn't fit in because they said I thought I was white. Imagine the irony. Me, a little brown girl from Haiti who loved her blackness, apparently thought she was white. Go figure. I also do wonder if part of it was that she was so fucking gorgeous. I know. Do you know what I mean? I think like maybe they would have been less quick to be mad about that if they weren't also deeply threatened by her. Yeah, I feel like if you're tall and strikingly beautiful and you just show up very proper, that's threatening. I don't know. I don't know how she stood, but I feel like if her posture was decent, there would have been an air of this bitch thinks she's better than us. Another funny line from this is that when she went to school in Miami, there's a lot of teen pregnancy in her school and her mom like freaked out and made her switch schools. Her mom was very protective. And it seems like up until now, her mother had been such a great mom. And she tells this story actually about how her mom only ever really had one boyfriend in Boston. And one day when she was a teenager, Garcelle got home alone from school and the boyfriend was in the bathroom taking a shower and just like opened the door and was just standing there naked. So Garcelle ran into her bedroom, locked the door. And as soon as her mom got home, she told her and she goes, I never saw that man again. She broke up with him the very next day. And it was such a fucking relief to read that story about a mom just like defending her child. I kept thinking about Demi Moore. Yeah, it is devastating that doing the bare minimum when someone exposes themselves to your kid, you say, all right, we're going to shut this down. The fact that that is unique in a lot of the books we've read to have a mom that stands by her child in an experience of sexual assault. We don't see that. I mean, truly, like compared to Demi Moore, Demi Moore's book talked about a time that her mom had essentially pimped her out to this guy so they could live in an apartment. I mean, what about Shania Twain, who we just read being like, oh, I couldn't even tell my parents that someone was trying to sexually assault me because they would have just been mad at me. Or what about the fact that her dad sexually assaulted her? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) But the amount of times women will pick their boyfriend who was abusive to their child over their child. It was really exciting to be like, oh my God, she did the right thing. Good for your mom. Yeah. So then when they're in Miami, Garcelle's dad comes back and the mom just accepts him. He moves back in. He just jumped right back into the driver's seat and took the reins of control. This man who knew nothing about me was there trying to tell me what I could and couldn't do. I also want to say, I wonder if this is why they moved back to Miami randomly. She says this because her mom got sick of the cold, but I find it a bit suspicious that they moved to Miami. And then the dad was there. I wonder if she moved because he said they could be together. She didn't give us the consideration of a heads up to take the temperature of how it would make us feel. And she just never connects to her dad. I mean, he was gone for over a decade. If I could describe this stranger in five words, I would use distant, cold, stern, bookworm, and quiet. Bookworm? Her dad was a wormy. Let's give him some respect. (laughs) 
She also says that her relationship with her own mother becomes very strained at this point because my mother was suddenly no longer a factor because she conceded her power to him. She receded into the background in our household and became invisible. And out of obvious resentment, the dad would yell at Garcelle and Garcelle would be like, you can't yell at me. Where the fuck have you been my whole life? And then the mom would be like, well, listen to your dad. And that made Garcelle angry at her mom. And she also says he was such an angry presence in the house she could no longer bring friends after school he was always mad at her telling her what to do so when she would come home instead of like chatting and getting a snack and talking to everybody she would just lock herself in her room couldn't wait to get out so she also mentions how in Haitian culture it's very woman serves the man and I think just being a family unit with a single mom where you guys are all in it together and then all of a sudden having it turn on a dime and she says her mom wouldn't eat until the dad got home she was very much in service to him all the time and I think that just is such a different person all of a sudden it's such a different family all of a sudden but she also is like my mom had it completely together and was doing fine on her own why did she need this man but I also am like I don't know Garcelle maybe she was holding it together but she was tired but also it is frustrating to be expected to like love wholeheartedly this man who doesn't even need to apologize for the abandonment when the dad came back he also brought a son who was four or five years older than Garcelle from another family which is ballsy to be like I ditched you guys and I'm back with extra it wasn't like he brought some like newborn baby. He brought like a 23 year old son and the son at one point tried to kind of harass Garcelle, like try to like hook up with her and be like, let me teach you things you need to know. You're so young and inexperienced. And again, the very next day, her mom kicked that man out. Mm-hmm. The son was no longer welcome to the house. And I do think outside of Garcelle's biological father, her mom was like very protective and always put Garcelle first. Yeah. Which once again is not something we see that often. And it was very refreshing But unfortunately, as Ashley was saying, I recognize I was also taught from an early age that pleasing men and making them happy was the most important hallmark of being a good woman. So then when she's in high school in Miami, one of her friends brings her to be an extra in a commercial with her. And she was like, this is so cool. She tries to ask the main actress in the commercial, like, how did you get this? And she says she was not giving up the goods. So then she found other people on set to be like, all right, how does this all come together? I want to be an actress. And they tell her her agent is this woman, Irene. So she's like, all right, I just have to get this agent. She had never even heard the word agent before, but she's like, I got to get one. So she goes to drive across town to visit the agent. While she's driving the art, she stopped at the light. And she goes, I leaned over to look in my side mirror to see if I needed to apply more lipstick. When I reached over to grab my lipstick out of my bag, I was completely startled by a hand reaching into my car with a business card. The voice attached to the hand told me, you should be a model. The name on the card, Irene Marie. I later learned that she stopped at the same light in a car behind me and she saw my face in the side mirror. That was not just a simple twist of fate. This was God. So she gets signed on the spot to this woman who she was going to ask to sign her. And not only that, but I guess Irene Marie's agency was one of the big destinations for bigger model agents to come through and scout. So when Eileen Ford is coming through town, Eileen Ford herself sees Garcelle and is like, yes, her she should come to New York and be a model. So at 17 years old, Garcelle convinces her parents to let her pack up and move to New York. And she moves in with Eileen Ford. That's how much she believed in her. The model apartment was full. So Eileen Ford let her move in. The other thing is Eileen Ford had to personally speak and convince her parents. And her dad almost didn't let her. And she was like, there's no way you're getting my way. He loudly declared that he had no intention of supporting me financially in any way. He threatened that if I'd better find a way to make money and support myself or return home. The or return home part was all I needed to hear to ensure that I would make my own success. So then she moves to New York. She's staying with Eileen Ford. She gets another job just because, I mean, she's not making that much money at modeling yet. It's a hard business to break into. So she gets a fake ID so that she can get a job as a cocktail server at the Playboy Club. She says they have three floors. It's super intense. You have to go through all this training. 
they have a house bunny a bunny mom they have a bunny mom and there's a locker room there and you have to get yourself all ready to go and she has to prove of you physically before you're allowed out on the floor there she meets legendary r&b artist and producer named kashif she tells this little story about hooking up with him and dating him and he would send a driver for her and have her go out to westchester where his compound was and finally the driver who was also caribbean and so therefore he had like a real soft spot for garcelle was just like why are you doing this why are you subjugating yourself to this and she goes what do you mean and she's all offended and then finally he's like you know he has other girls coming in the minute you leave and she was like what <laughs> So she just never sees him again. I do think she has like a real strength in her that she will end something that isn't serving her. I think in their family, it seems like until there is a ring on your finger, like until it's official, nothing is official. So she's living in New York. She talks about how hard it was to be a black model because, I mean, there were not many and everybody wanted you to look white. And she talks about how a lot of black women felt pressure to make their features more white by using like plastic surgery and stuff. Viola Davis talks about being interchangeable. So the darker your skin, the more Eurocentric your features should be, which seemed to be across all industries. She says, shave a little here, lift a little there, and you were suddenly more palatable and marketable to a broader audience, a white audience. Even though I wanted this life so badly, I wasn't willing to do that. I loved my look and I was proud of my ethnic features. I guess my mom's worrying about assimilation was unfounded. She had done a great job raising me to see myself as beautiful. And then she talks about getting her first Essence cover. She was scouted on the bus. Yeah, she was scouted on the bus to do Essence. And her fucking dad. God, this so she calls her parents to be like, I'm going to be on the cover of Essence, which is a huge fucking deal. So she tells her parents, she tells her dad to go out and buy some copies of Essence. He comes back with the wrong month. Yeah, he comes back with the month before. And not only does he get 10 copies of the wrong month, but he shows them off to people. And he's like, oh, here's Garcelle on the cover. That's not her. And she's like, I know you weren't there for so many years, but I ha you don't know what I look like. You can't remember what I look like. I mean, that's so fucked up. Deeply. So then she does a commercial with Michael Jordan and she didn't know who he was. And she was like, they told me I was going to be in a commercial with Michael Jordan. And the way they were saying it, it seemed like a big deal. So I acted excited, but I didn't know who Michael Jordan was. And then he invites her on a golf date. So she's like, sure, I'll go on a golf date with you. And then he's like, do you want to come to Hawaii with me? And she's like, Hawaii? That's ridiculous. And she says no. And she's like, if my kids ever find out that I turned down Michael Jordan, they're going to be pissed. <laughs> Can you imagine going on a golf date with Michael Jordan? And then you like go down one of the holes and then you go to Toontown. <laughs> play a little basketball against the Monstars. Scoot back up onto the golf course. <laughs> Fun date. <laughs> no Ashley I don't think it's fun to have to save the planet from intergalactic basketball foes that to me isn't a good first date and that's exactly the problem with dating today is that men expect all of you on date one <laughs> men these days you meet them on tinder you go for a drink and they expect you to be able to go one-on-one -on -one zone defense against fucking aliens <laughs> I'm sorry but get to know a girl first I think that's the best way to get to know someone strengths weaknesses whether or not they can withstand Michael's secret sauce <laughs> And then she just talks about like she was at Studio 54. She was at Studio 54 and she like sat down at a table where they gave her cocaine for the first time. And then she spilled the tray of cocaine before she could do any because she like didn't really know how to balance tray and little straw hand, I guess. Yeah. So she spilled it all over the table and then they were like, all right, none for you. And she was like, I took that as fate to just not do cocaine. And she ends this chapter just being like, I was 17 years old, making a ton of money. She didn't know about taxes, obviously. Who among us does? And, and not me. She's making money. She's supporting her family. She's having a great time. She's traveling the world. It's all working out for barely legal Giselle. Like she's 17, 18, 19 and yeah. living a dream life. So then she gets into motherhood. <laughs> and this second chapter will take us up until present day. <laughs> so 
She meets her first husband, Danny. She's 22 years old. They get married after two months of knowing each other. She gets pregnant pretty quickly. No, she gets pregnant two years later. That's pretty quick to me. (laughs) 24? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't call it quick. I'd call it early. Quick in the race that is life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And guess who's against her having a baby? Her mom was so mad at her. They didn't speak throughout her entire pregnancy, and they didn't really make up until she called her mom to be like, oh, by the way, I had a baby. She said that her mom was just so upset that she was so young and having this baby. Her mom felt similar to you, that it was too quick. And she says being a pregnant model at that time was not something to be celebrated. It was actually career suicide. And that made me nervous as well. I mean, that would make me nervous as well. And that is true. I think only recently did people get on board. Rihanna just made it okay to be pregnant. But guess who threw her a baby shower in lieu of her own mother? Eileen Ford herself. Eileen Ford was obsessed with her. She calls her... A guardian angel of mine coming through in a pinch. So the day of contractions, Danny and I frantically call the doctor. They go. They have the baby. And when she calls her older sister to be like, I just had a baby. Her older sister's like, you have to call your mom yourself right now because if she hears the second hand, the damage won't be undone. And of course, I mean, there is no better way to win back a parent than to come with baby in hand. They can be mad when it's in your tummy, but when they're looking at it, it's squiggly little face. They to say you have a grandchild on this earth, that is a fucking bat signal. It is parent antidote. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing on this planet I feel like they can get mad at you about when you give them just like a little bundle of love. So she and her mom make up and her mom is just like, I was just really worried about your career. I don't feel like you have a solid enough foundation to just leave now. So anyway, it works out. Her career actually takes off more than ever. She becomes bi-coastal. They're going between L.A. and New York, and they finally ultimately move to L.A. so that she can lean more into being an actress. And also because they didn't want to raise a baby in the city center. I do feel like if you're working a lot in New York and L.A., having the baby be in L.A. makes a lot more sense. Yes. Her first real show is on the soap opera Models, Inc. by Aaron Spelling. And if Ever it, heard of him? If you're at all interested in what kind of father Aaron Spelling was, might I recommend six I was gonna say our podcast but sure (laughs) go buy your own book too bad there's nobody that'll read it for you like if you would like us to do another Tori Spelling book and thumbs down if you don't want us to do another Tori Spelling book where here what are you talking about (laughs) okay don't thumbs down us anywhere please tweet at us hashtag no, this is old school. This is who's with tabs shit. Go for it, though. If you would like us to do another Tori Spelling book, tweet at us. Hashtag yes. I would like to know more about what happens in Tori Spelling's life. And if you don't want us to do another Tori Spelling book, tweet at us. Hashtag no thank you. I've had enough Tori Spelling for this year, but maybe next year. <laughs> Wow, this is real throwback to how we used to run a podcast. <laughs> I can't believe that those podcasts failed. Anyway, so she gets on Models, Inc. It only lasts a year, but then she gets co-starring on the Jamie Foxx show from 1996 to 2001. Her character was Fancy Monroe, and she lived up to her name in every way. This show became a big hit in cultural vernacular of the 1990s and made me a household name. Well, at least in some households. So then her relationship with Danny falls apart pretty quickly. So he was a lawyer. He was in, I think, law school when they met. But was he a lawyer? I don't know. He was, it seems like nothing. She says that she could not lean on him financially, emotionally, and physically. Can I just say, a couple of times throughout this book, she talks about how she wants a man to show up for her. And it's always like emotionally, financially, and physically supportive. And I'm like, you mean he couldn't pick you up? Like if you sat on his lap, he collapsed? I feel like physically supportive means like household labor, maybe. Or maybe like physical presence. Yes, maybe. 
Like some people aren't there physically. Some people will like support you financially, but then you like never really see them. That was the problem that JLo had in that music video. Love don't cost a thing. Yeah. Another necklace. I don't need another necklace. I want you here. Right. Physical support. Physically supportive stuff. I think of like a beam. Yeah. I think of like bridges. I think of like a buttress. (laughs) That's a mattress for your butt. (laughs) A lap is a buttress. No, a lap is your butt's hat. (laughs) So she says, I am divulging where I've been. It has caused me to overcompensate in all categories. I had to be more emotionally attuned, more financially driven. It was exhausting. I was tired of chasing the dream. That is what led to my first failed marriage. After the divorce, Danny would often say that I emasculated him. He felt I could afford to give Oliver more financial stability and material things than he could. The act of co-parenting didn't go well. To understand Danny fully, you also have to recognize that he had suffered a great deal of traumatic loss in his own life growing up. He didn't spend as much time with his young son as I would have liked because he felt that he didn't have enough. He accused me of getting in his way, of being a dad to Oliver. His apartment wasn't big enough. His job situation wasn't good enough. Danny was always driven by money, chasing that elusive big payday. He missed out on really crucial times with his son, waiting for everything to be perfect or right. Little did he know that all his son wanted was his dad, imperfections and all. I do think that that is a big problem with men in general. I think men are always waiting for like everything to come together before they can really start. And that's not ever anything that happens. Yeah. She also says that they became different people. She says they like grew apart. And it's like if you knew someone for two months before getting married, you might not have ever really grown together. Yeah. You might not have known each other at all in the first place. She kind of blames them a little bit here for as you'll find out later, their son Oliver had some problems with addiction. And she talks about when he was young, they sent him to this like super fancy school that they almost felt nervous about sending him to like Jack Nicholson's son went there and they would talk about the elaborate private school birthday parties where even the school had to be like, stop with these birthday parties. It's fucking insane. (laughs) And she says that somebody thought he had ADHD and Danny refused to let him get toasted. She says that's the thing about maleness in the black community. Sometimes it's inextricably tied to the illusion of perfection. Any hint of regularities is a threat to manhood. Suddenly you are considered broken. Then she meets Mike. He was an agent, an up and coming agent at CAA I don't know how far apart they met. That is something I would like to know. Me too. But they didn't really hit it off. She says they became good friends. And then one day they're in a car and he kisses her. It sounds like she was his friend and he was pursuing her. Well, she says he was specifically told, do not ask her out. He was set up with her per request. But they were like, the way to do it is don't ask her out. Everybody asks her out. Play it cool. Become her friend. I kind of call it Stockholm syndrome Yeah. And she says she didn't settle for him. She's like, he wasn't my usual type. I wasn't initially attracted to him. This isn't settling. Like, she calls him the safe choice, but not because he's ugly, but because she says he had a safe job. He wasn't an actor, a musician, Mm -hmm. something unsafe. Mike was a nice, smart, nurturing, and giving to both me and my son. He was a safe choice. Not safe in the sense that I felt like I was settling. It was safe because I had made a conscious choice that I had no interest in dating a professional athlete, flashy rock star, or A-list celebrity. I wanted somebody more grounded that would be there for Oliver and just be dad to our future kids. And I think he was a really good father figure to Oliver. Like he was really in it for both of them. But it does sound like he was a safe choice and that she was like, all right, he's not that hot. He's not that interesting. He'll just support us financially, physically and emotionally. Boy, oh boy, that does not work out. So after a couple of years, finally, she's like, all right, should I go off the pot? Are we going to get married? And he's like, I guess I'll get off the pot. Yeah. He was like, no, I don't want it really. I think that was red flag number one that he wasn't the safe choice. Yeah. Can you imagine, though, being just like a dorky looking agent and Garcelle is like, I want you to marry me. And you're just like, "Mm, I'll hold out and see what else comes along. It is important to know he was at CIA and he was really hellbent on getting to the top of the ranks and I think that was her mistake is thinking that he was different than a flashy rock star or a flashy 
baseball player or something, because if you want to be the top of an agency, you are entertainment world adjacent and you do want to be the top of that world you just like recognize you have no inherent talent or skill or marketable asset like you still have a toxic ambition it's just not at anything cool and and to be like in the milieu of cloudy people yeah he wants to sit next to jack nicholson courtside anyway i cannot wait for you guys to see what this man looks like on our instagram this week it is it's really one of those lessons it is not about how beautiful you are it's about how insecure they are yeah So they end up getting married. What happens is three months after he gets off the pot, so to speak, the pot being their relationship, they run into each other perchance at a red carpet event. And on the spot, he asks her to marry him. He sees her again. He's like, oh, what was I doing? So they end up getting married. And then they try and get pregnant. They have a really hard time. And simultaneously, she's having a really hard time with Oliver. And I think the way she talks about it is, and she talks about this specifically, is tricky because she says Oliver's an adult man now who has a baby of his own and a wife and is working hard to continue his life but he went through times of addiction that was so hard on our family and took years to get past and it started when he was 12 it turns out he was going into ninth grade they had sent him away by the time he was in ninth grade she tells a story about when he was 12 and being like should he be allowed to go out all night with his friends and mike is like yeah sure and now she's like looking back i actually don't know if that was mike's own child would he have said yes and she's like i think we gave him too much freedom too soon They send him to Pennsylvania at one point to live with Mike's parents, which actually I think is very sweet. Mike and his whole family completely took in her and Oliver. And at one point she had to move out to Pennsylvania to keep an eye on him at his grandparents' house. And it just seems like it was a really hard time. And it was like ups and downs. She doesn't get too into it, but she is just like, if you're going through that, I know what it's like. It was hell on earth for years. She says, you know, it seems like she's smiling and great on the outside, but for like a decade it was just a roller coaster every day she was afraid and so you never really know what's going on with someone and she also says this about her own motherhood today after years of therapy tears and heartache I can painfully admit to myself that I took my eyes off the ball with Oliver I assumed that because he had the best of everything everything would work out for the best unfortunately that was not to be the case everyone does their best and I could see how she's like we're at the fanciest school she had a lot going on she had a busy career she went through a divorce she got a new husband they as we'll talk about soon struggled with infertility And it just seemed like she was like, how could things go wrong? He has a roof and food and endless clothes and like private school education. It's true. Like all the money in the world isn't enough. Yeah. And I think it also hammers in the fact that addiction itself is a disease. It's not Mm -hmm. really something that I'm not saying like environmental factors don't play in. Obviously, they do enormously. But I think that when someone is prone to addiction, having a nice house and nice clothes isn't going to cure that and she says it's hard as a mother to like see that clearly somebody has a chasm in their soul that you can't fix and it does seem like he's on the men now he is all in it gives me such pride to see him being the man i knew he could be an amazing thoughtful dad to my beautiful grandson oliver jr oj for short that acronym took a little time for me to co-sign on (laughs) i love the relationship he has with his new wife sam in some ways she saved his life gave him purpose and healed his spirit can i say something yeah this is for another day but the way that I feel like moms will expect some girlfriend to fix their son. They'll be like, I did my best. Now it's on to some 22-year-old woman to heal him from the inside. That is a real thing that moms hope a girlfriend will do. Fix their wayward son. I'm like, is that her job? I feel like I've never seen anyone talk about a boyfriend in the same way we talk about girlfriends. I don't think I've ever heard anyone be like, he's really good for her. He helped her through this. You know, she's been a bit wild, but she was really irresponsible. And I think he's going to come and help her find her purpose and settle her down. Yeah. Just a lot of pressure to put on 
young women to be like, okay, she's the one who's going to get him to be a proper man. It's on you to like put in the extra work of parenting somebody. Exhausting. On TikTok, my big new thing that I'm so mad about is the way that people are allowed to be openly sexist to babies. (laughs) That if somebody has like a female fetus in their body, you're allowed to be like, she is going to be a cunt when she's a teen. (laughs) Girls are a handful. I mean, even with little, little children, people are still like a man eater or like that boy is going to be batting girls off with a stick. It's like, stop talking about how hot my baby. Is. If you put two babies of opposite genders in a room together, they're dating. And I'm like, listen, you fucking perverts. <laughs> <laughs> like you're telling me a baby can't be friends with another baby. They're fucking or they're not. <laughs> you try to tell me those two babies are fucking there's sexual tension in the room between those babies. No, there is not. They just like see shapes. <laughs> yeah. So then she talks about how the mistake she made with Oliver helped her be a better mother to her two twins that she has with Mike, ultimately, Jackson Jade. I will say then she immediately gets into deciding to put them on reality TV, which is maybe not the best parenting choice anybody has ever made in their life. I do like Garcelle, and I'm sure she is a good mom. I will just say to be like, I learned a lot from the mistake I made with Oliver. Like, I should have had more people watching them. What if all of America was watching my kids? I also do think overall it's a little bit tough to be like, listen, I really fucked up with the first one. Let's see how these next pancakes turn out based on what I've learned. So then she tells a story about an episode of Real Housewives that's out there where one of her sons like snaps at her and is rude to her on TV. I think I vaguely remember it, but it was like mid pandemic and she was like, they just didn't want it. And I felt so humiliated about the idea that them being rude to me was going to go out on TV. And all of her friends were like, first of all, teenage boys, they're 13 years old. They're going to be rude. Yeah. I know everybody thinks only girls are rude to their parents, but believe it or not, a teenage boy can be an asshole. I don't know if you've met any. She's like, he's usually so good about acting in my scenes. And then he just wasn't this time. He wasn't having it. I get that being homeschooled all day. She was working from home. Then you bring in a crew and he was waiting for dinner. Also, you can tell when they have parents that the parents are really trying to like ham it up for the camera and the kids just don't want to. I don't know. There's nothing more annoying than as a kid than when you're watching your parent like act away and you're just like, who is this for? Yeah. My mom used to always do that. My parents like really would make fun of me as a way to like bond with other people. They'd be like this old dumb bitch. (laughs) I was always like, why are you saying that about me? And they'd be like, no, it's funny. And I'd be like, not to me. (laughs) So she was like trying to explain that. I don't really care. I'm maybe watchers of RHOBH are over there being like, what's her explanation for that time? Her 12 year old son was grumpy in a pandemic. And her explanation is that he was a 12-year-old boy in a pandemic and he was grumpy. And then she says her philosophy on parenthood is just having conversations. And I was like, that is a good philosophy. She says a common phrase that women usually use is that men have to change. In my own life, I've come to really question this statement. I believe that there is another side of this statement, which puts some of the onus back on us women. I would say that we as women have to change, change how we love our sons. In doing this, we will help them eventually become the men that women want to love in the future. I am paying it forward. I believe we should hold them responsible when needed and allow them to cry and feel deeply when necessary. We can't nurture the toughness in them without acknowledging and encouraging their compassionate and loving side as well. To have a complete man, both must coexist in equal increments. If only Anna Lynn McCord had been Putin's mother. (laughs) So then we get to a chapter called Marriage and Love, which is where she gives us a little bit more sauce on her relationships. This, I actually think the whole book could have been this. Yeah, I was like, this is the goods. This made the whole book worth it because the story we're about to tell is Benerners and she does tell it like minute by minute. So after explaining her 
first marriage. She then goes into her second marriage and she says, I am truly a hopeless romantic at heart. This is how I see it. Marriage is not the pinnacle or end goal to my romantic life. If it happens, it happens. I want a man, but I don't need a man. That's a big damn difference. And I've spent some deep soul searching moments, readjusting my thinking and refocusing my energies towards the type of qualities I want in a partner. And then she says, it's no longer hard for me to admit that I would like a man in my life. And I feel like she comes to this point where she's like, I want it, but I'm also not going to settle for anything. Yeah, she says, I'm past the point of looking for someone who's going to make my life happy. I've worked really hard to accept the reality that I'm responsible for that. That's way too heavy a burden to place on somebody else's shoulders. Happiness must first come from within. So I actually have a thought. You can cut this out because it's not related to Garcelle literally at all. I was just thinking about it today. And it's about this narrative of making sure you're like happy with yourself before looking for a relationship. The thing that everyone says to single people when Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, well, if you want a relationship, you have to work on yourself first. You can't need a relationship. And I I agree with that entirely. Like you obviously a relationship is not going to like fill a void within you. But I do think there's this weird thing where like if you're single and you have to like work on yourself and make sure you're happy with your own life first which fair agree but then not being in a relationship for a certain amount of time the way people like question you constantly and like make you feel like you are like doing something wrong because you're not in a relationship yet being like why are you driving everyone away like give people more chances lower your standards do all this eventually you start to be like what is wrong with me and then it like devolves You know what I mean? Like, and then you keep having to like circle back, be like, okay, now my confidence is shot because everyone keeps on saying there's something wrong with me for not being in a relationship. So I have to work on myself again and get myself back up to the point where I'm like ready to be in a relationship again because I'm not looking for someone to like tell me something about myself. I have it from within. And then people like drag you back down with societal narratives again. And then you have to like lift. It's like a really weird circle. It sucks. People are dumb. No, it does (laughs) suck. I do feel like for the stage she's at in her life, For her, it's completely different. She has like three children and she was in her 40s. I agree with you 100%. I feel like she's coming from this place of I can't say my life will start. Yeah. I do think she's looking at it like I can't wait to be happy. This is my life. I don't think it applies to her actually really at all. (laughs) I was just she said that and it made me think of the rant that I was thinking of that applies to like 20 to 32 year olds. (laughs) So then she talks about her mom and her grandma. And then she says, the strange thing is growing up, I saw my mother and grandmother as such strong, independent women who would never let absentee men ruin their lives. They survived countless setbacks and rejections, but nonetheless accomplished great things. My mother in particular absolutely never gave up on finding love. The only sad part about this is that she equated her value as a woman with how that love was received by the men she chose. She didn't put a value on the intensity and selflessness of the love she gave. Rather, she internalized the cruelty of the lack of love she received back. Growing up in my household, I never saw what lasting, nurturing male-female relationships looked like. And so then she talks about her first marriage and how that ended. She does give one different story about Danny that is like a fun name drop. She says, the bigger I was becoming in my career, the smaller he seemed to want me to shrink. And then she says, I distinctly remember being really close with Angela Bissett in my early days in Hollywood. She was kind, fun-loving, and a very generous spirit. She would always call us and invite us to parties and gatherings with her. In essence, this went against the grain of everything you hear about backstabbing competitive women in the business. We were both black actresses fighting for the same spotlight in a city that had room for only one at a time. Whatever she would call, I was thrilled and wanted to go, but Danny would always find excuses for why we couldn't. To please him and ultimately keep the peace, I would decline the invitations. Angela eventually stopped asking and we drifted apart. So sad story about the state of her marriage and her relationships at the time. But cool story about Angela. You love to hear a woman who's nice, inclusive, very racial Hollis of her to be uplifting other women. Yeah, (laughs) I do think that that is just one of the biggest red flags is a guy who doesn't want you to hang out with your friends. 
and a guy who won't just go to a party with you for a little bit. Anyway, so then she talks about her next marriage to Mike and how by all appearances and to her it seemed like a perfect marriage he was super dad he was such a great stepdad to Oliver he was such a great father to their twins he loved being there all the time they would go on red carpets trips to Italy it was lovely she thought they had a very glamorous Hollywood high profile life probably incredible backyard hangs that would have been made even better with a solo stove I don't know about Garcelle but my perfect evening is probably just hanging out in a backyard with my friends having a drink and sitting around a fire now picture this you're sitting around a summer evening campfire and instead of having to constantly rotate to avoid getting smoke in your eyes the worst game of musical chairs of all time you get to just sit enjoy it with a smokeless fire thanks to solo stove your eyes stay clear so that you can take in the evening. Your clothes stay unstinky. What a perfect way to enjoy a fire in the backyard. It's so easy to set up that I did it. It's so easy to clean out that once again, handled. And quite frankly, being able to set up a fire quickly is a deeply underrated activity because one of my top favorite foods of all time is a s'more. Yeah, you can make them in the microwave, but it's terrible. It's a terrible experience. And being able to just throw a fire together, enjoy your s'mores, it just doesn't get much better than that. The Solo Stove is the perfect upgrade for story-worthy moments without the fireside fume. The stainless steel construction is designed to regulate airflow and burn the fire more efficiently. There is so little smoke you'll wonder how the fire even exists. And it's the perfect catalyst for getting outside, enjoying the outdoors, fresh air, family, and friends. It's so easy to light a fire and there is a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy so you can test it out, enjoy the fire, see how you feel. Right now you can shop Solo Stove's best deals during the Memorial Day sale and use the promo code WORM at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com promo code WORM for $10 off on top of the incredible Memorial Day discounts. But hurry, the Memorial Day sale ends on June 5th. And then she was in Atlanta working on a project and she came back for a weekend and he was very cold. She was hustling back from Atlanta for the weekend just to spend Easter with her family. Yes. And at first he was like, can't you take a car service home? And she was like, no, I'm flying from Atlanta to see you. You can come to the airport. And then he shows up late and she's like, you're telling me I took a six hour flight and you can't be on time from a few towns away. When he finally showed up, he came around the corner to grab my luggage As he was rounding the corner, a strange feeling welled up in my soul. And out of nowhere, I heard myself faintly muttering the words, that's not my man. I don't know why, but that feeling overtook me unexpectedly. So then they're spending the weekend together. He's being just kind of weird. And she tells a story. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there is a lot of detail. And the amount of detail makes me feel like it's a lie. Okay. (laughs) I do think that instead of being like, I accidentally saw his texts, she's like, and I was tripping over a, a suitcase I had to borrow his phone for a very specific reason yeah and I I turned to the left and the way that I turned my finger moved and when my finger moved I opened his text I'm just like just say you looked at his text or a text popped up yeah and a you text popped into it. up it's fine because he he's the worst person here so I'm not judging you for looking at his text I do think it's a very fine line when you're going through someone's text I don't know whatever but the way she tells it it's a full page illustrating the way that the text popped up. So then she says she saw a text that said, I love you. So she finally confronted him about it. He said he'd been having an affair for five years. Five years. And his parents were there at the time for Easter. So she obviously freaks out. I would freak out too. Five years. 
I mean, you were saying this, like the whole, I had an intuition, something was wrong that weekend. She was like, for her to be like, something was different when you picked me up that day. Something had been different. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why that day you felt different. I was expecting the story to be like, he had cheated that week that she'd been away and it was the first time and he felt so guilty about it. It was not that. He is a cheater. He had been having an affair with a woman in Chicago. So then she's like, well, you better go down and tell your parents before I do. He was like, I just need time. And he's like, she's like, well, you have until I get to the bottom of the stairs. And so he runs down and she tells them. Obviously, she's heartbroken. I will say for him to be like, I need time to process what I've done. That's such a man thing to do. To you be had like, five years. <laughs> I did something wrong. And now if you want to have a conversation about it, I need time to think about myself. It's like, no, you don't. You did something. And now you have to own up to those actions. You don't get time to like spin it to your family. So then she sends this email that I guess she calls infamous. And I think maybe I was just too young for it or something. Or maybe I wasn't aware, but she sends an email called What Do Tiger Woods, Jesse James, and Mike Nylon All Have in Common to, she calls it like a circle of close friends, but it's his colleagues at CAA. Yeah. And then it gets leaked. And and then she's like, I never thought it would be leaked. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of think you did think you it would be You did send leaked. an email to his coworkers saying that he cheated on you. I get it though. Listen, I will never judge somebody for what they do when they're rightfully okay I don't think she's wrong for what she did I think if you find out that your husband of I mean at that point not that many years they were together for nine years they were married nine years when they got divorced. okay so if you find out that your husband of probably eight years at that point has been having an affair for five of them I mean you can do whatever the fuck you want like you can do whatever send the fuck an you email want. to his boss I don't care but don't act like you didn't think it was gonna get out the problem with what she did for herself is that even though she did nothing wrong, I feel like the humiliation and the publicity of it all is their business. Yeah. So whereas I understand the want to like discredit him, unfortunately she is the famous woman and as a woman in the press, she's going to be the face of this scandal. Yeah. And I know nobody wants to be like publicly known to be cheated on. So anyway, then it comes out of course. So she kicks him out of the house. She goes to work. She comes back a week later because she's still working in Atlanta. She takes the kids to the zoo. She's at the zoo. She gets a call from people magazine It wasn't just one woman in Chicago. There was many women everywhere. And, you know, we could have guessed. I feel like five years of cheating, eventually the line is just like, there is no line. You just. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm a dignified man. I have my wife and I have my one mistress. Like Chicago. Yeah. That's not it. So she calls him to confront him about all these other women. And he, he goes, I won't say anything to you until we're in front of a therapist and hangs up. And she's like, well, that's as good as saying, yeah, there are other women. So then she, I mean, she talks about how hard it was. Obviously it was so painful crying. She finally filed for divorce in May, 2010. Jade and Jax were three years old when the divorce was finalized. They like went to therapy. They did everything they could to get to a place where they could co-parent. And she says she even thought about getting back. And she goes, we had two little boys after all. We also had a history, a public image and had built a nice life together. And let's be honest, no woman wants to start all over again in her forties. Despite these urges, I also had a very real perspective of what a lack, a lack of trust and undeserved forgiveness can do to a woman's soul. A big reason why I never tried to work it out with Mike was because of this, or rather these affairs were not isolated incidents. This is just who he was. I realized that if I stayed in a relationship with him, it would have changed the very essence of who I was as a woman. I would have become that insecure wife gripped with anxiety and doubt every time her husband left the house. I would constantly be sneaking into his emails, looking at his texts, questioning the conversations. I wasn't willing to go there. More yeah. importantly, I wasn't willing to have my boys grow up with a mother so preoccupied and consumed by such insecurity and mental anguish. I mean, it would have eaten away at her enormously. She can't just all of a sudden be like, he said he'd never do it again. Like she never thought he'd do it in the first place. We've talked about this a lot. There are cheating incidents and there are cheaters. Yeah. 
I think that cheating can happen in extenuating circumstances, like a one-time smooch. That's a pretty small gray area. (laughs) You get one mistletoe mishap. (laughs) It happens. But... To have been having a five-year relationship with another woman, lots of other women here and there. Like, that's a cheater. That's someone who's never going to change. Honestly, I think what ends up happening is in some ways a good thing. So she, going into her 40s single, really discovers herself sexually. Yeah, she says as a Haitian woman, she had grown up in a very conservative environment about sex. Her mom had never talked to her about sex, and she never really considered women's pleasure. So she gets two vibrators. She really starts knowing herself for the first time in her life. Well, she says she had one thing that she's always loved, and that's BJ's. Yeah, but again, I wouldn't say that's a woman's pleasure situation. I've never no. heard of a woman coming from a giving a BJ. <laughs> I'm just saying that was like her one saucy thing before she started really figuring out her shit. And then she has this like really hot and sexy relationship with this guy named Darnell. I always feel like the people who have the best sex on earth are middle-aged divorced women. Yeah. I'm always like, that's who's out there. Like, I fucking know myself. I don't give a shit. (laughs) Yeah. And it sounds like she fit that exact recipe. (laughs) And so she gets into all this stuff. And then, of course, they have to break up because she's like, at the end of the day. It was too much work. She's like when every sexual encounter is some like acrobatic role play lingerie in the middle of a park. Also, she says one of his big things is that he was into like voyeurs or not voyeurism. He was into public. Yeah, he's an exhibitionist. Exhibitionist. So she was like, at the end of the day, if that was his number one kink, I cannot provide that for him because I'm a public figure and I can't have a felony. Well, that Lamborghini was way too much maintenance after a while. It finally dawned on me that I needed a simpler yet reliable Mercedes-Benz that could withstand the mileage of life. But I have to admit, it was really fun taking that Lambo for a test drive a few times around the track. Then she has a little talking stage with a guy who never wanted to buy her anything. And so she was like, that was bullshit. And I actually do agree with her stance here. There's a lot of back and forth nowadays of like what men should pay for, what women should pay for. Like, should guys pay for first dates, blah, blah, blah. And especially when you're just getting a drink or something, my stance is always yes, because I just want to see that you care enough to spend like $9 on me. I'm not saying buy me stuff. I need to be showered in gifts or anything like that. But it is a gesture. I do like the gesture of someone just wanting to cover it. And so she's going to go to this magic show with this guy and he sends her the link to buy her tickets. And she's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Especially as adults. Yeah. She's like, I had the money to buy the tickets. I just hated that vibe. And I was like, me fucking too, dude. Only God knows where my romantic life will lead, but as sure as I am black, I know I will be ready to greet it 100% of the way. Until then, I give myself permission to enjoy doing the field research and making mistakes along the way. So then she gets into a chapter on her fertility journey, which there was a long phase of infertility. She ended up doing IVF with Mike in order to have their twins. She had two miscarriages. Yeah, she had two miscarriages from like natural conception and then she finally went to the doctor and it turned out she had all these horrible fibroids. So she had surgery to take them out. And then because of the surgery, she had like a horrible pain and she went to the emergency room and it turned out she <laughs> was like full of shit and she almost died. And luckily they were able to do the surgery to like save her. But then after that, she's like, I don't know if I can do IVF. Like, I feel like that was my body saying no. And then they ultimately decided to do it. They tried to adopt, I think, at one point. And then they decided to do IVF. It takes a couple of rounds, but it takes, obviously. And she has the twin boys, and she's so excited. And in the middle of trying to do IVF, she does Playboy. So she says she 
posed for Playboy with fertility patches on. She was on hormones, on treatments, and they, I mean, had to airbrush them out. But I think that taking those very sexy photos while on hormones must have been a very empowering thing. I almost wish the raw images were out there somewhere for women to see as like an empowerment thing, not like a sexy thing. I feel like a woman really feeling herself while undergoing those treatments. I think a lot of people just like end up feeling sad because they're like dosing you with hormones and those really get to your head. Plus you're like trying to have a baby and that's like a really hard thing to experience. Anyway, so then the next chapter is about her faith. I also like what she says here. She says, I've separated the act of regularly going to church from the walk and intimate relationship I have with my creator. And I think that that is very interesting. She talks about the distinction between like physically going to a church and like the spiritual connection you have with someone. And I think that that is a really important distinction. This chapter overall, when you look at what the actual parts of it are, is pretty dispersed. So first it starts with a story about how she found out after her mom died that her dad had written Garcelle a letter, sent it to the mother to give to Garcelle, and the mother had thrown it out and never given it to Garcelle. And Garcelle obviously was not close with her father. He is gone now, and she will never know what that letter was. And her mom's gone too, so there's no trace. And she says, my mother, whom I cherished and adored, chose to fully participate in the pain and turmoil my father brought to her life. That was her choice. I didn't get to make that choice. I was a kid. I will never know whether the what ifs would have been answered had I gotten to read his final letter to me. What I know is that in the absence of any type of official closure, it left me with a bunch of additional lingering questions. I mean, I think that's an example of a time she had to find forgiveness. She went to therapy to try to work on that. The other story then is in the wake of her divorce with Mike, she was like reeling and she decided she wanted to write children's books and she didn't know how to go about it. She takes her kids to the park one day, randomly meets a man. At the end of the conversation, she's like, so what are you doing? He's like, I run a comic book store and I'm trying to start writing children's books. And they ended up writing three children's books together. And she's like, that's God, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. So then the next chapter, Finding My Voice While Black in Hollywood. This is a lot about how Hollywood really likes to only have Oh, wait, no. This is actually not at all what you would think this chapter would be about. It wasn't about her struggles against racism. It's like BTS on Black Hollywood. So she was almost a Cosby victim. She tells a story about how he saw her, got her on the show. The next time Mr. Cosby invited me to his house because he wanted to talk to me about going to college. His position was that he didn't want me to have to rely on modeling as my long-term career plan. Fuck you. She's done fine. Garcelle has done fine. And so he like gave her a drink. And she took a sip. She wasn't even of drinking age. And she's like, I felt really uncomfortable and I didn't know why, but something didn't feel quite right. I immediately made up an excuse and ran out of the townhouse like a bat out of hell. I never saw Mr. Cosby again. He called. I never replied. And we were saying like, I think that this comes from the fact that every time a man was creepy to her growing up, she kicked that man out of the house. Her mother The mom did. So I think she credits her intuition fully with this. I think it was heavily her intuition, but also that her mom gave her permission to be like, if you feel uncomfortable, get the fuck out of there or get rid of that person. Never speak to that person again. A lot of women have intuition, but they're told that if you feel weird around a man, be polite to that man not run away from him and to run away from bill cosby when you're an aspiring young model she's 20 years old and has the gall to like get out of there good for you dude good for you you know me i'm a coward yeah this is a funny line though she says i feel that we are given intuition to help guide us especially when knowledge and experience are lacking i mean that's not something you feel that's what intuition is that's just explaining the word (laughs) So then she talks about what it was like. The, one of the sad realities in this business, especially for a black woman in Hollywood, is that 
it's so much harder for black women because there's so few roles. They want you to be this way or that way. And she's like, even though objectively I could see that there weren't many opportunities for me, it's hard not to internalize that you're not doing something right. So she tells this story about how Models Inc., the first TV show she was a main cast member of, she saw that there was a part and she talks to her agent and says, you have to get me a role. The agent gets back to her and says, they don't want to go urban with it, which just means black. And she was like, no. So she finds out where Aaron Spelling's office is. But she's like, it's hard, by the way, because there was no social media back then. There was no Internet. She drives up with her headshot and resume and a letter explaining why she should have a role on Models Inc. And then she has a chapter about her best friends, her village. She talks about the front row of people in your life who've seen it all, the good, the bad, and under there, no matter what. And she views essentially her circles as like the circles in an arena. So she's like, you have your front row and those are the people that are your ride or dies. And then if someone kind of betrays you, you usher them up to the nosebleeds and they can still watch. They can still look at your life on Instagram, but they're not within spitting distance of you anymore. And then she actually tells this name droppy story, which I'm like, I guess your editors were like, do you know anything interesting? Mm-hmm. And so she goes, I used to have a friend named Paula Barbieri. Yes, that Paula, the one who dated OJ Simpson. I mean, as 90s babies, I was like, oh, that Paula. Okay, <laughs> okay. sure. Can I say everything I know about the OJ Simpson trial has come from other memoirs we've read? Yeah, 100%. I, all I knew was a white Bronco. That's literally all I knew. Yeah, I knew that there was a car chase that when I finally saw footage of it I was like that car is not moving that fast so then she just says she has a friend named Paula and this very much is a story that has nothing to do with Garcelle but she fully threw it in here for titillation so I'm going to share it with you guys because who are we if not also exploitive bitches who are trying to titillate you so Paula dated him and everybody was like so taken aback by like how handsome and charming and cool he was he w- she was a model he would show up to their shoots taking them all out to lunch everybody was amazed one day she gets a call from Paula frantic and she was like have you ever gotten into a fight with Danny where like he threatens to kill you? And Garcelle's like, no, <laughs> I guess he dated and married Nicole Brown Simpson next. But then she's like, Paula moved to Florida. I never heard from her again. I was like, wow, we really went to the vault for this story. Did you know OJ had a daughter who died? No. Yeah. She talks about going to a party at his house and finding out that OJ Simpson had a daughter who had drowned in like the pool at his house. And she was like, why would you still live in this house? But she goes, mind your business. <laughs> I have to laugh at this next chapter. Reality bites behind the scenes stories. This chapter is all about clearing up her side of the story for all of the fights she's gotten in in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But to open it, she uses a quote from Nelson Mandela. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my destiny. Great quote. Great man. Totally Garcelle. But of all the chapters to invoke Nelson Mandela, I don't know your fight with Kyle Richards. (laughs) She talks about. Oh, wait, this is not even about the Real Housewives. Oh, no, it is. Her chapters are like mislabeled. Yes. Okay. Can I say, this is the chapter where she talks about her behind-the-scenes adventures on, like, regular Hollywood stuff. And then Primetime Adventures is a chapter about her side of the story on a reality TV show. That is tricky, and I'm sorry I made a mistake, but I don't think that that's my fault. I do think it's her fault. She tells them the Aaron Spelling story, which I guess I put somewhere wrong. I tell you this book, because it's not chronological, it's just... It's the way she categorizes topics... And the way she categorizes topics is not the way I personally would categorize topics. See, I personally would have put the story where she was rejected from the Aaron Spelling show into what it's like to be black in Hollywood. Yes. But she put it here. Okay. She also talks about being on the Jamie Foxx show. And then she she says that one time they kissed, but they decided we're on a show together. It's best not to get our feelings mixed up in it. So they don't date but she did one time see him naked and she said you guys he has a big swanging dick she goes let's just say that his tool belt was pretty stacked 
He might have had enough tools for two jobs, actually. Girl, I can't lie. Seeing the full scope of what he was working with in that department kind of put the fear of God in me as well. What the fuck is Jamie Foxx working with? And what the fuck can Katie Holmes take? Can I say, I've said it once and I'll say it a million times. Katie Holmes, write us a fucking memoir. There are so few that I'm begging for. And that is one where I'm like, Please, dude, I will do whatever I can to make sure the Scientologists don't kill you. Cardigan sweater set Katie Holmes can take a dick. What? (laughs) I guess once you leave Scientology, there is no God left to fear. (laughs) She was like, give me that dick. I've seen the devil and I won. (laughs) I snuck away from Tom Cruise in the dead of night. Cruise's entire body used to enter her. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, I wonder how tall Jimmy Fox's dick is compared to Tom Cruise. I will say part of me is like, what if they never fucked? What if she kept on being like, oh, I have to go home early tonight for two years. That's why she was always with Sorry. She was like, sorry, don't let go of my hand. (laughs) I can't go home to that man. And so she got a chance to audition for The View and she had a horrible experience. She was like, it was my dream. I thought it would be the best thing ever. And everyone was cold. They didn't want her to talk. Rosie Perez literally kicked her under the table when she was talking too much. Whoopi Goldberg would not be nice to her. Yeah, she says, I was shocked and appalled to see how testy Whoopi was with the show's producers. I was embarrassed and disappointed, to say the least. And then she goes along to be like, the next day Whoopi comes by my dressing room and is like, oh, I heard you worked with my daughter. She said you were really nice to her. And Garcelle was like, yeah, I was. And then Whoopi just leaves. And she says, she goes, I wish I could say that that was just like a bad day for Whoopi. But everything I've heard is that that's how she is. I actually have also heard that. I knew somebody who was a PA at The View. Mm -hmm. Can I say? Mm -hmm. Kind of a bummer. She talks about considering the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And she says, I tend to be a more private and regular type of person who relishes in the fact that despite the occasional red carpet and fabulous party, I led a pretty normal and quiet life. I guess you can say I enjoyed the best of both worlds. So she was very hesitant to put her life and her family on camera, but it seems like not hesitant enough. Yeah. And then she goes through and she recounts all of her big fights on Real Housewives and like what her side of it is. is. And I have to say, as somebody who saw those fights, there is nothing else here. She basically says one of her big fights is with Lisa Rinna. And it was because she asked Lisa Rinna if she thought Lisa's dancing around naked on Instagram had anything to do with her daughter's eating disorder. And then her daughter got mad about that and said, fuck you about Garcelle on the show. And Garcelle's like, I innocently was just asking mother to mother. And I'm like, Garcelle, Garcelle. I mean, yes and no. If you went up to somebody addicted to drugs and said, do you think your active drug addiction is why your child has an active drug addiction? Yeah, of course they're correlated. Is the active drug addict going to be like, totally, thank you for pointing that out to me. Like, I'm happy and grateful for your on-camera acknowledgement that I have personally caused my child to almost die and be sick. No. I don't know what kind of reaction she thought she was going to get, but be reasonable, Garcelle. Lisa Rinna has an ED to this minute. I used to see her hiking. She was all like mouth and boobs and then the next one was about kyle and there was i mean kyle said she didn't pay for something there had been a mix-up where like they hadn't collected payment i will say we see this in every reality tv person's book where they really feel the need to come into their book and be like listen i the most reasonable person in the room made a calm statement and they yelled at me I don't know why. I don't know what caused it. And it's just like, I don't, there is definitely more to this story. I don't think there is more to this story. It literally just is like, I think she didn't like Garcelle because of an allegiance and she had like a gotcha, which is Garcelle had bid on a vacation. She went on the vacation and then she never paid for it. And it really was just like a, I think you assume people are handling things. It hadn't been handled properly. Garcelle immediately paid it. 
but like Kyle sat on it and used it to come at her as a gotcha moment like it's literally like there was so little to go on that they had to like use this and there is no two I mean the two sides are exactly what was presented yeah and then she says that she I mean it seems like Kyle was pretty stubborn about admitting that she was being a bitch yeah well Garcelle was like for you to accuse me as a black woman is like to promote stereotypes and she was like and I will say I remember Garcelle being like would you have said this to one of your white castmates and I'm like yeah they will say anything to each other (laughs) if one of her like if another castmate that she was mad at had not paid something she also would have like they will weaponize literally anything but it was like interesting to watch those women be confronted with race for the first time in their fucking lives yeah she says that in here she's like you know I was nervous the producers would be mad at me for bringing that into the conversation but they had never even considered it and it is interesting to have the conversation like to have these conversations with women who have lived in like their own world speaking of coming to america we weren't speaking of that but now we are she talks about how after that movie came out her and eddie murphy actually ended up dating on and off for a year or so and she says i absolutely adored his mother miss lillian and she was kind of heartbroken when she found out he got married and she's like oh maybe that was the one who got away and me and asher saying what woman does not think low-key she could have married eddie murphy I mean, it's all women who've dated him. So I won't say like, but I've dated a lot of people that I specifically was like, I could not marry you. And that's why we're not still dating. Yeah. I will say Mel B even after like the horrible way their relationship imploded, still considered him the love of her life. And then we have Garcelle over here being like, we went on a couple dates over the course of a year and a half and he may be the one that got away. I guess Eddie Murphy is just the absolute charmer of the century. I think he lays it on so thick up front like such the ultimate love bomber that even when things go bad, you like can't reconcile that the first version of him that you met isn't the true him. And then she gets into the end of the book, which is sincerely, I guess all memoirs have to end in a pitch for their new product. She's had eczema. That's been very hard. And so she's coming up with a line for black women with eczema. Yeah. She says that she hasn't had any plastic surgery except her boobs, which she has since taken out. And then she has other products that she feels the need for you to buy. She also is like, I love things to be beautiful. That's why I love fashion and I love a beautiful house. And I'm like, got it. Chapter 11 is a note to self. And this is where I actually liked the note to self. Okay, go for it. She writes a letter to herself and she's very kind to herself. She says, remember to remind yourself that you've accomplished this remarkable feat without all the historical reference of a strong male father figure of your own. It's okay to admit to yourself that this, my dear, is a job well done. She like really forgives herself for all of her shortcomings and gives credit to herself for all of her successes. She says, you've slayed many dragons of lack and loss in your lifetime while wrestling with the nagging inner voice of self-doubt. Sometimes that nagging voice is so quiet and other times it's debilitatingly loud, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, so continue to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep up the good fight, baby girl. You have been, are, and will continue to be enough just as you are with love, Garcelle. I think that that's a beautiful way to sign off to yourself. Throughout this book, she really takes credit for her successes in a way that I loved. Mm -hmm. I think that she talks about herself really beautifully. She says, like, I am talented. I am beautiful. I am. Like, she she is. Yeah. No, she's so beautiful. (laughs) I can't wait for you guys to see the modeling photos of her. But I think that we see a lot of times when women take credit for themselves, they either are so braggy, it's annoying and maybe that's something I need to work on tone wise with women or they caveat everything and apologize for their success and for everything they've done and it's just like don't apologize don't be braggy but she just says like this is what I've accomplished I'm very proud of it and you're like yes 
be proud of it. Hell yeah. What did you think of the book overall? I mean, lightning quick. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to the beach for Memorial Day weekend and you need a book that you can read in three hours for one hour a day on the beach. Yeah. If you're going to the beach for Memorial Day weekend, you might need to bring a second book. (laughs) I was thinking we should like rank all the books we've read into like groups. And I think I would rank this as overall fine, comma, if you like her, you will leave happy. Yes. She, this is not a book that you read and it turns you against her. It gives you more than nothing. And it's not like the Bella Twins where I would recommend it to someone who doesn't know any. Like the Bella Twins book, I'm like, that is a, an uplifting book that I liked. And yeah. even if you don't know the Bella Twins, I liked it. And I would recommend it, honestly. This one, I'm like, if you like Garcelle, if you're a Real Housewives girly. You're going to walk away getting what you expected and hoped. It's positive. It's fun. It's lighthearted. It's better than a Christelle. It's better than a Christelle. Yeah. I mean, there is honesty to it. She was definitely a part of the process creating this book. Yeah. And so there's, I mean, really, she like had some stories she wanted to share with you and she had some perspectives and wisdom. It's not going to fucking blow your mind. No. But it's not going to ruin your idea of her. No. Which is something that a lot of these books do do. Yeah. All right, you guys, as always, we have the Patreon this week. I'm so excited for it. Yeah, we had a Worm to the Wise go up last week. So if you want some wisdom. Yeah, from our dumb brains. Drop in. And we love you so much. And Ashley. Yes, Claire? Oh, and also don't forget the Facebook wormhole if you're looking to connect with the worms. Yeah. We've also got somebody did a CNBC wormy hang community on Twitter. I don't actually know how to get into it. I tried to figure it out. And I guess I'm like a boomer now, but I couldn't figure it out. But anyway, who do you want to thank? Okay, I want to thank our five-star reviewing worm a lot. Thank you to Sarah Ashley. Oh my God, another Ashley. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change it to Ashley Sarah, but I fucking appreciate you. Thank you, Marley loves you. No, we love you. Thank you, Kate Street. I would buy a house on Kate Street if I thought buying property was a good idea. Thank you, Jen has one N. I would never expect you to have more. Thank you. Elizabeth with an I, I appreciate your unique spelling. Thank you, Chloe Grok. I hope one day we can split some guac. Thank you, Kata Karn. Listen, I don't know that much about Karn, but I know Claire is obsessed with corn, and I hope that that's close enough. obsessed with corn. Claire loves corn. I'm obsessed with Claire is, like, obsessed with corn. Don't say that about me. Thank you, KMRS. I would get my MRS if I would have the chance to marry you. Thank you, Eddie Talk. I am addicted to your app, TikTok. Thank you, Fiona Pels. I would love to overdose on your Pels. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole Dom88. We are simply subs for you. Thank you, J. F-I-F-K-F-M-D. Oh, wait. I think we did that one. I don't know which of those letters I would fuck Mary and D down, but I guess all of them for all three. Okay. That's it for this week. Love you guys.